issue of Christianity Today, and I was struck by an ad that was in there. It had a couple pictures of buffalo, and it said, Buffalo culture, who are you with? And uh, being the sucker that I am, I looked the website up, and sure enough, it was for leadership techniques. And strange enough, the buffalo have something to teach us about leadership. Now, I'm not meaning to jest. Of course, we can look at creation and derive principles. Solomon encouraged the sluggard to look to the ant. They don't have a bureaucracy, and yet they provide for themselves. But something was just funny about the whole thing. You see, you can have all the techniques. You can understand buffalo culture and what it means to be a buffalo and be in a herd, and apparently that might help you in leadership. But as we return to our series in 1 Samuel, we find that all the techniques... All the leadership principles, all the gurus that are behind you, the uh, highly effective habits of leaders, none of that will really help you if you don't have one simple thing, one key ingredient for all leadership. We're returning to our series in 1 Samuel, and 1 Samuel is largely concerned with kingship, human kingship, and how they exercise it. And as we began, we looked at the house of Eli, all of their sins that were in his house, and how God was supplanting him and placing Samuel to be the next prophet and priest and judge. And we watched as that saga unfolded, and Eli's house was done away with. And and then Israel wanted a king. They wanted a king like the nations, and they chose Saul because he was dark and tall and handsome. And he looked like a king that the nations had. But Saul was missing some key characteristics. He was missing some qualities that kept him, some fatal flaws that we've already seen. As we ended last spring in 1 Samuel 13 with the beginning of Saul's downfall, the The army of the Philistines was arrayed before him, and he was told to wait for Samuel. But he doesn't wait. He goes ahead and sacrifices anyway. And Samuel says, the kingdom will now be ripped from you and given to another. So chapter 13 began what we call Saul's downfall. From there on, it gets worse and worse and worse. Samuel has said that he would not be with Saul. And so Solomon and his army, 30,000 chariots, 30,000 troops, as many as the sand of the sea. And they are angered because his son Jonathan killed the prefect and his city. And so they have come out in a great number to fight against Saul. And Saul is waiting. But Saul doesn't have that leadership, that key ingredient, that fatal flaw is that he lacks bold faith. He doesn't have faith. He doesn't trust in God. And so any of his techniques, any of the motions that he goes through will never accomplish the purpose that he hopes for. The question is, what does God require of us to act on our behalf? What does he need? Is it getting a large army, chariots and all the weapons? Is that what God needs to come and intercede and act on Israel's behalf. So as we open up this text this morning from 
1 Samuel 14, I want you to keep that question in mind. What does God require of us to act on our behalf? One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the pass by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sena. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go. For the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among the people in the garrison and even the raiders trembled and the earth quaked and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. And then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now when Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow. And there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Bethaven. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Thank you for our eyes to see 
And give us bold faith. Help us to understand and to savor the promises of God that we may trust more deeply. For we pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Verse 1 is sort of a synopsis for the whole episode. And verse 2 through 3, it tells us a little bit of the context, what's happening. Saul, he only has 600 men. He's still in Gibeah. The Philistine army is still on the other side of the valley. And he's waiting. He's waiting. Remember, previously he got in trouble for not waiting. He waited the seven days and Samuel wasn't coming, so he sacrificed and he went ahead without Samuel. Well, this time he's being smart. He's waiting. He's not taking any action unless the Lord tells him. Unless some revelation from God, he is not moving. Notice the narrator tells us who's with him. And he outlines his whole genealogy. Why does he tell us who his father is and all this? Why doesn't he just say, Ahijah, the priest, wearing the ephod? Well, because that priest comes with a pedigree. He comes from the family of Eli. And that family has been cursed. Remember the sign of that curse was that Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, would die in one day. And they did, and the Ark of the Covenant was taken. We looked at that last spring. And so God was supplanting the house of Eli and placing Samuel in its place. Where's Samuel? Why is Samuel not with Saul? You see, the text is very clear to point out to us, Samuel is no longer with Saul. And in fact, Saul has a puppet priest, somebody of the house of Eli, a a household that has not been faithful. And so the narrator wants us to know that although Saul is going through the motions, and he's even, he's even at it, uh, draws us to attention, a, a particular place that he's at, the pomegranate cave at Migron. This Migron, this word Migron is not a city, but it, it means a threshing place. It's a flat area outside the gate of a city where the people would take their grain to thresh and beat out the chaff. Um, but it's also a place of theophany. We see at the end of 2 Samuel that the Lord meets David at a threshing floor and he speaks to him. We also see in 1 Kings 22, the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. You see, this place where Saul is, is a place of theophany. A place where God reveals himself to his kings. Where he instructs them on what to do. Saul is waiting. He's got a priest. He's in the right place. He just needs a message from God. That's what he thinks. So he's piously waiting. Pious Saul is not taking any chances. But in contrast, and this episode is a whole episode of contrast between Jonathan who we see as faithful, and Saul, who doesn't trust God. He doesn't have faith. He doesn't believe in the promises of God, but Jonathan does. And what does Jonathan do? He creates an opportunity for God to act, and then he seeks him to do so. And that contrast is what's on display. It's a contrast between walking by faith and walking 
by sight, by action and inaction, between bold faith and dead piety. So what does God require of us to act on our behalf? It's simple, faith. Simple, but it's not easy. Let's see how Jonathan, in his life, in this episode, evidences this kind of faith. He says to his armor-bearer, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison. The center of this story is found in verse 6 and 7. He says, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Why does he say that? Why does he refer to the Philistines as being uncircumcised? Because they're not a part of the people of God. The circumcised are Israel, those who belong to God. Their circumcision marks them as being a part of the people of God. You see, there's already this faith, believing that we are God's people. Jonathan believes that. He believes that he is a part of the people of God, and that makes him special. And that gives, grants him access to a power that's beyond his power access to God himself, who has pledged himself to be his God. Jonathan devises a plan, and his armor-bearer pledges his loyalty. Notice, he says, let's go over. And the armor-bearer says, I'm with you, heart and soul. I will follow you. He sees the faith of Jonathan, and he seizes on that and said, I will go with you. We are heart and soul together. And so they cross over. And they have to go down this wadi and up the other side. And it, and it lists for us the details of that. This crag is called this name. And this one is this name. And it's at this place. Why is he doing that? Well, because for Jonathan, this is a sort of death and resurrection. He is going down into the, the valley of the shadow of death. And he emerges again as a warrior. And that's seen in the language of Bozes and Sinna. Bozes means thorn. He goes down the thorny path. And the other crag is Senna, and it means shining. And he comes up the shining path. And here we see a picture of the death and resurrection of this warrior king who is a type of Christ. So even the journey is perilous and requires faith. He doesn't know what he's going to face on the other side, but he knows he has to go up to it. The Philistines have the advantage. They have the high ground. And he devises a test. And he says, if they say to me, you you stay there, we will come to you. Then we'll stay. And we will defend this ground. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go. For we know that the Lord has given them into our hands. I want you to imagine the scene with me from the Philistines' perspective. Imagine a small band of 600 men that lies on the other side of the valley. You can see them. They're so tiny. You have 30,000 chariots and 6,000 troops. You're secure. They're probably partying. And they've just got a small watch that's just making sure nothing happens. And then all of a sudden, they see two guys pop up. And they're just laughing. (laughs) Look, the Hebrews are coming up out of their holes. Hey, come on up. We'll teach you a lesson. And that's the cue. And Jonathan acts with bold faith. And he goes. And he begins. He cuts one down. And 
as he falls, the armor bearer kills him. And he does it again and again and again. And at the same time, the earth begins to quake. I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake, but it's terrifying, right? You have absolutely no control. And all of a sudden, this warrior, who you think is no threat at all, is a terror to you. Not only is he slaughtering this watch, but the very ground beneath him is shaking. And you begin to tremble. And now you're turning and you can't tell if your brother is your enemy or not. And so out of fear, you begin to strike him down. And a great panic erupts in the midst of this people, so much so that Saul on the other side hears it. See, Jonathan exercises bold faith. He trusts God. But what does Saul do? Saul says, what's that panic? He doesn't even know what's going on within the ranks of his people. He's got to number them. Is everybody here? What's going on? Are we all accounted for? Oh, Jonathan's gone again. I mean, he's, it's like a father. He's probably thinking, this kid is going to be the death of me, you know? And so he says, okay, we need to be cautious about this. Let's think this through. We don't want to be hasty. I don't know what he's doing, but I don't know if the Lord's behind that. So let's take a moment. We'll form a study committee. We'll begin to talk about this. So if we get the right answers from God, then we'll align with them. So he calls for the ark of God. And there are a lot of uh, questions about this because we know that the ark of God is resting miles away. And remember, they tried to open it and they got all scared. So they came to this, the town of Kiriath-Jerim and to the house of Abinadab. And we know that it stays there until 2 Samuel 6 when David comes and brings it to Jerusalem. So either he's sending an emissary to go and get the, the ark miles away, which will take days. So he's not going anywhere, right? He's, let's be very cautious. Maybe that's not the case. Maybe he's referring to the ephod. The ephod that the priests wore had two stones in it. They're called Urim and Thummim. And these are a way for determining God's will. They're kind of like dice or stones that would be cast and they would give you an answer based upon Urim this way. If you would say something like, if God is for us and he wants us to go, we will get Urim. And then you would cast the, the uh, stones and whatever came would be the will of God. And this was given in the law of God. This is a way for them to determine God's will. So it could be that Saul is calling for the priest to come with the ephod and determine God's will. He calls Ahijah, and they begin to pray, right? They're in the middle of their prayer meeting. They're thinking about it. They're praying, is this your will? And then the panic begins to get worse. More and more, the people are erupting on the other side, and Saul says, enough, I'm done waiting, and he begins to rally with Jonathan. So even in his pious patience... He's impatient. And he, he says, withdraw your hand. Sounds like they're not finished with the work that they're doing. And he breaks it off to go and join with Jonathan. And we see also that the Hebrews, after they had been confronted by the Philistines, apparently defected and went to the Philistine side to fight against Israel. It's unthinkable. 
And others went and hid throughout the rest of Israel. Now they begin to hear that the Philistines are being defeated. And they come and join and they rally together with Jonathan. And the key, the very key to all of this is found at the very last verse in verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day. We have before us a contrast of unbelief and bold faith. We have the contrast of Saul who's playing cautious. And it's a stunning contrast. And we ask the question again, what does God require of us to act? Nothing but faith. He needs only that we trust in His promises and lean into them. It's Saul chooses the cautious way, a way that looks pious, but it's motivated by unbelief. He doesn't trust in the promises of God. He goes through the motions. He does his Bible reading. He prays. He comes to church on Sunday. He gives tithes and offerings, but, but not from the heart. Not from a heart that believes, that trusts in God. He does it from unbelief. And unbelief says the promises of God are not true. And God is not trustworthy. Of course, we don't say that out loud. But, but our lives demonstrate that that's what we believe. Luther, in his great work, The Freedom of a Christian, written in 1520, said, What greater rebellion against God, godlessness and contempt of God, is there than not to believe the one who promises. What is this but either to make God out a liar or doubt that God is truthful? Or to put it another way, is this not to ascribe truthfulness to oneself and falsehood and vanity to God? You see what unbelief does? Unbelief says, I don't really think God is truthful and I can't trust his promises. And what does that do for you? That puts you in the place of God. And that puts God in the dock, as it were, for us to examine Him and and to determine if He is truthful and trustworthy based upon our standards. Unbelief says God is not trustworthy. And it leads to an action that is often disguised. I do right, but not from a love's God. But faith... On the other side, what Jonathan, how he acts, is totally different. He does two things. He, he creates an opportunity for God to act, and then he seeks God to act. How does he create an opportunity for God to act? He says, let's go over there. He's done with it. He says, we're not going to have this thorn in Israel continuing to plague us. Let's go bring the fight to them. And he goes. And he says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by few or by many. Nothing can stop that. And that is a trust in the promises of God. He knows his story. He knows where he fits in that story. He knows because he's been told of Gideon and Samson. And even of Samuel and the deliverance that God has wrought in Israel in his lifetime. And he knows of the exodus. He knows how the people of God were brought out of Egypt 
And they did nothing. They just sat and watched the mighty arm of the Lord deliver them as he crushes his enemies. He doesn't need their help. He doesn't need Israel to deliver Israel. This is what we have to get into our heads. Faith trusts and rests in what Christ has done. He doesn't need you to complete that work. It's finished. You have to trust in it. You have to believe it. And that trust and that belief creates opportunities for God to act. Unbelief sits still and says, not only do I not trust the promises, but I'm not doing anything. How on earth is your neighborhood going to be evangelized if you never step out your door? If you never speak to someone about Jesus, how will someone ever come to know Him? If you don't open your mouth and speak about God to your children, why would they continue in the faith? And if you don't open up the Scriptures and read it to drink deeply so that you can know the One who has saved you, how will you ever grow in intimacy with Him? Faith creates an opportunity for God to act. It steps out and says, I believe. Now act. And He does. He does in miraculous ways. We often use as an excuse God's sovereignty. We rest on that. We say, oh God, God is working out His plans. He's sovereign. He doesn't need me. It's true, He doesn't. That statement comes from unbelief that God will use you to do something. We take the sovereignty of God and we twist it. We use it as a bludgeon or a tool for inaction. But faith not only creates an opportunity for God to act, but it seeks God to act. The test that Jonathan gives is it's like Gideon's, but it's not like Gideon's. Gideon's test where he puts the fleece out is there to bolster his faith. Jonathan is already trusting in God. He's just providing a way for God to act. He says, if this is the way they respond to us, then God is for us and we're going. He is seeking God to act on his behalf. Many Christians wonder why they never have victory why they never grow in their faith, why they constantly struggle with the same sin, it's because you don't believe. You don't believe that God can deliver you from it. And you don't live like that's true. You know the creed. You can can pronounce it from heart. But it hasn't penetrated to your heart and lived out in your life. It doesn't make any difference. Maybe you began good. Maybe at the beginning of your Christian life, you were killing sin. And everyone around you was stunned because you were a new person. And then after time goes by, you sort of put the sword away. Sin got tough to fight against. You weren't winning battles, so you just... He said, you know what, I'm just going to get here. I've got a priest the right spot. I'm going through all the motions. I'm doing the spiritual disciplines. I'm, I'll just wait. 
but it's motivated by a heart that doesn't love God. We grow comfortable with sin. Then we excuse it. Oh, yeah, is that really sin? I don't know. There's some, sh- there's some nuance here. And we get very sophisticated in our theology, all in efforts to keep us from action, to keep us from bold faith. But the truth is, Christian, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That means that there is not one promise that hasn't been fulfilled or won't be fulfilled because of Christ Jesus. Do you believe the promises of God? Those promises propelled Jonathan into action. And those same promises are ours. For the same God who delivered Israel from Egypt has delivered you from sin and death and reconciled to you to God. You are no longer an enemy of His. But God is for you. Do we really believe that? What opposition could ever cause us to be afraid if God is for you? Nothing. Nothing. Jesus said in John 8.36, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Why do you live like you're a slave to sin? Paul says, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. We would never say it out loud. We would never say, I don't trust God's promises. I think He's a liar. I would rather that, right? We can talk with somebody who's that honest. But we live like that. We live like that's true. Jesus endured the shame and humiliation and His death on the cross so that you could be reconciled to God. And that means that God is not your enemy. And all that He requires of you to act on your behalf that you believe Him. That you trust His promises. That's all that God requires to act. That you believe the promises of God. So I would challenge you, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, to to be bold in your faith. Create opportunities for God to act and then seek Him to do so. Like Jonathan. That kind of faith, God works through. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Great God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks that every promise is yes in Christ. We believe, Father, help our unbelief. We would cling more tightly and trust you more deeply and step out more boldly in that kind of faith. Work it deep in us. Banish fear. Banish unbelief. And give us the kind of trust, the kind of hope that propelled Jonathan to say, the Lord can deliver by few or by many. We thank you that in Christ you have delivered us and made us more than conquerors. Do so more and more. For we pray this in Jesus' strong name. And amen.